0: A question that's been plaguing me as of late, and that's what I want to begin with today. What in the world is happening in the church? That is a question that has been on my mind almost daily, and I know it's been on the front burner of the Christian blogosphere for weeks. I'm sure you've heard by now, maybe some of you haven't, maybe some of you don't even know who this person is, or that a well-known and best-selling Christian relationship author and former megachurch pastor by the name of Joshua Harris has announced the repudiation of his Christianity Harris's post on Instagram read as follows, quote, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. That's a scary statement. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now, unquote. In a previous post, Harris also confirmed his divorce, announcing the end of his 20-plus-year marriage after realizing that, quote, significant changes have taken place in both of us, unquote. Harris also apologized to the LGBTQ community for opposing their rights and standing against marriage equality in his books and in his preaching. Shortly thereafter... Hillsong United worship leader and songwriter Marty Sampson made headlines after announcing also on Instagram in a now-deleted post, quote, Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like what bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world, it's crazy, unquote. Now, since then, to be fair, that Mr. Sampson has clarified his position by stating that while he hasn't renounced his Christianity, it's nevertheless on incredibly shaky ground. Those are his words. Now, both of these announcements have generated no small amount of responses in Christian circles, both positive and negative, as well as prayerful. But it has also raised a very prominent dialogue in the Christian community regarding the issue of apostasy. And that is an issue that I feel is necessary to address with you as a pastor and a teacher. How should we approach This often misunderstood and likely misinterpreted concept. Do you even know what apostasy is? From where I stand, in order to make some sort of sense out of the confusion and the devastation that apostasy brings, I believe that it must be viewed from, from kind of two angles, both from a theological standpoint as well as a practical standpoint. And that is why I've decided to spend a bit of time over the next few weeks unpacking this issue biblically from those two angles, theologically and practically. So for the next few weeks, here is my planned sermon itinerary. So if you want to know what's coming up, here it is. Today is going to be apostasy and the sovereignty of God. And we're going to look at that from the standpoint of Romans chapter 8. Next week, Apostasy and the Responsibility of Man, parts one and two. We'll take two weeks on that, and we're going to look at what God's Word says to us about being warned about walking away from the faith out of the book of Hebrews. There are five major warnings in that book. Let me begin by saying apostasy is not pretty. It's a sad thing to witness and an even harder thing to explain. The collateral damage and fallout that it reaps is palpable. And pat answers are not helpful. I'm of the persuasion that what we encounter when a friend or a parent or a pastor or a spouse or any Christian walks away from the faith is just the tip of the real struggle that's going on in their life. Only God knows what's going on in the heart of even the most theologically versed, and practically holy men and women. We are a fickle, fickle people. And as one writer notes, creeds and confessions shall never prove one's genuineness. They shall never measure the state of their heart before their Creator and reveal their love for Christ. Indeed, there have been many, are many, and will be many who hold to the most lovely and elevated concepts of God and articulate rich historic doctrines with theological acumen who have no love of Christ. This is particularly frightening for all who love theology. So what exactly is apostasy? Well, the term apostasy comes from a Greek word, apostosia, which means a defiance of an established system of authority a rebellion, an abandonment, or breach of faith, unquote. That's a lot of words. I read that in the first century world, apostasy was a technical term for political revolt or defection. And just as it did in the first century, apostasy threatens the body of Christ today. Author Matt Slick writes these words. He says, apostasy means to fall away from the truth. Therefore, an apostate is someone who has once believed and then rejected the truth of God. Apostasy is a rebellion against God because it is a rebellion against the truth. In the Old Testament, God warned the Jewish people about idolatry and their lack of trust in Him. In the New Testament, the epistles warn us about not falling away from the truth. Apostasy is a very real and dangerous threat. To apostatize means to abandon previously held beliefs. This abandonment can be intentional or accidental, he poses. There can be individuals or denominations that purposely repudiate the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And there can be also be individuals or denominations that do not intentionally abandon the basics of Christian doctrine, but have gradually moved away from them. They've drifted. Now, this begs a few questions in my mind, maybe yours too. Are apostates genuine believers or are they self-deceived professors of faith? Is it possible for a true believer to apostatize or apostatize? Either one of those are correct. Which inevitably begs the ultimate question that everyone wants an answer for, and I'm sure you do, can a true believer lose his or her salvation? And then the second is like it, could it happen to me? Some years ago in my reading, I came across the results of a contest sponsored by Omni Magazine for what I would call a list of somewhat tongue-in-cheek scientific theories. Humorous explanations of things otherwise hard to understand. So I thought I'm going to share some of the top finishers with you. I thought you might appreciate them, lend a little lightness to this heavy, heavy series. Honorable mention. Listen to this explanation. The quantity of consonants in the English language is constant. Okay, that's his premise. If omitted in one place, they turn up in another. For example, when a Bostonian parks his car, the lost Rs migrate to the southwest, causing a Texan to wash his car and invest in Earl. Second runner up. Ever wonder why yawning is so contagious? Yeah. Here's a theory. You yawn to equalize the pressure on your eardrums. This pressure change outside your eardrums unbalances other people's air pressures, so they must yawn to even it out. See, I already know some of you are yawning just at the mere mention of a yawn. First runner-up. If an infinite number of rednecks riding in an infinite number of pickup trucks fire an infinite number of shotgun rounds at an infinite number of highway signs, they will eventually produce all the world's great literary works in Braille. (laughs) (laughs) And here's the grand prize winner. When a cat is dropped, it always lands on its feet. Anybody ever try that? Yeah, right. And when toast is dropped it always lands with the buttered side facing down. So I propose, he says, to strap a buttered toast to the back of a cat and the two will hover, spinning inches above the ground. And then he says, with a giant buttered cat array, high-speed monorail could easily link New York with Chicago. Enough of that. This morning, I want to simply say that just as very few people completely comprehend the mysteries of science, so very few people completely grasp the mysteries of God's amazing grace. We don't. Even fewer of us can adequately explain the depths of his wisdom and truth. And why do I begin this message like this? Because the text we're going to deal with today is one of those passages that cannot be approached as mere philosophy, nor strictly as theology. We cannot simply encounter it intellectually or theoretically. Because expecting to explain these verses so that you and I can fully comprehend them would be as frustrating as trying to hang a high-speed monorail on hovering cats. As D. Martin Lloyd-Jones told his hearers at Westminster Chapel, he said, this is the mind of God. So if you make your own understanding the basis of your approach, you are doomed to failure. No finite human sinful mind can ever grasp it fully. If we could do so, it would mean that our minds are as great as the mind of God, if indeed not greater. What counts here is not what you can understand. We must start as Moses did by putting off our shoes from our feet as we approach this holy revelation of the mind of God. We must not be at all surprised if we find that there are quite a number of things that we cannot understand or reconcile as we look at this passage. There are ultimate antinomies in connection with divine truth. There have always been and will always be. So we must approach the teaching in a humble and reverent attitude. Unquote. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 8 and verses 29 and 30. Derek Thomas recently referred to Romans 8 as, quote, the greatest chapter in the Bible. I think he might be right. One of my favorites. Scottish theologian Sinclair Ferguson calls it breathtaking theology. I love that. Because it is. Whenever I have preached on or referred to Romans 8 in verse 28, for example, I have communicated the idea that God has no process without good as its purpose, as his purpose. That's Romans eight twenty eight says, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. To me, that just says that God doesn't have any process in his grand scheme of things without good as his ultimate purpose. If that is true, and indeed it is, then I want to suggest to you that in verses 29 and 30, Paul expands that truth to its ultimate end, that God has no process without his purpose being fulfilled. Okay? Keep that in the back of your mind, because in short, verses 29 and 30 are the explanation of verse 28. Let's read verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Everything in the life of a believer that occurs is part of God's ultimate plan to make us like Jesus. And further. Nothing on earth can ultimately thwart that purpose. That's what these verses are saying. In recent weeks, the defection of Joshua Harris and the shaking ground of Marty Sampson's faith have been seemingly motivated, at least in part, by their frustration with unanswered questions and the discrepancies between the current cultural shift and God's commands surrounding sexuality and morality. And at least in Samson's case, his struggles are with issues like why a loving God would send four billion people to a place, a place, all because they don't believe. He can't even say the word hell that's written in the Bible. And how does he know that four billion people are going to be sent there? And why is the Bible full of contradictions? These are the questions that he struggles with after 20 plus years of being a worship leader at one of the largest churches in Australia. These questions often press us beyond the limits of our understanding of God's plan, don't they? His process or his purpose becomes hard to understand. We simply just don't know the answers to those questions. But we must have faith. We don't have the big view of it all. The eternal scope of what God has in mind. The message says this. Is there anyone around who can explain God? Anyone smart enough to tell him what to do? Anyone who has done him such a huge favor that God has to ask his advice? That's the message translation or paraphrase of Romans 11 verses 34 and 35. Of course not. There's no one around that. that, that wise or smart. But we know one thing for certain, God has no process without his purpose being fulfilled. And for anyone who is a true believer in Jesus Christ, though we don't always understand the full scope of all that that entails, there is security in that truth, okay? That God has no process without his purpose ultimately being fulfilled. There's security in that. There is security in verses 29 and 30. Again, let's read them again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. I want to give you just four truths we as believers can rest on in this passage. Now, obviously, I just got finished saying that we're not going to understand everything that's said in these two verses, so I'm not going to try to tell you that I understand them fully. But there are a few things that we can get out of this that we do understand from this text, right? Number one is that we are cherished by God. We are cherished by God. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew... Do you know that salvation is not initiated by a person's decision to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? It is certainly an essential part of the process. But my brothers and sisters, you and I don't initiate that process. We don't have the capacity. God did it before we were born. Before the foundations of the earth were laid. Why? Because he loved us. He cherished us. First and foremost, God's predetermination for us involved love. Just hold your finger in Romans 8 and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. No uncertain terms, Paul writes these words. Beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He loved us. The compound word foreknew in Romans 8, which, means, which is to know, and before, those are two words that are put together, doesn't simply mean to know beforehand. It also carries the idea of intimacy. Part of this word is frequently used in the scripture of a close, loving, and intimate relationship. For instance, in the Old Testament, the intimacy of a loving sexual relationship is oftentimes translated by the word to know. Okay. Genesis four seventeen, Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived. Literally, the word, the term had relations with is the word to know. And she gave birth to Enoch and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Amos chapter three, verse two. Oh, by the way, there's gonna be way too many scriptures for you to turn to this morning. So I just say, if you're taking notes, Jot down the reference. Use them as your devotional time this week. Okay? But don't miss these scriptures. They're important. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. You only have I chosen, literally the word known, among all the families of the earth, speaking of Israel. The word known, translated chosen here, speaks of the special, intimate, loving relationship God shared with his chosen people in the New Living Translation really captures the sense of it. Translates it this way, from among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all of your sins. You see? Love just doesn't let anything go in God's economy. He loves them enough to punish them for their sins, to bring them back. In his predetermined plan, God knew Israel. They had an intimate and unique relationship with him. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, in verses 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples but because the Lord loved you. See, this foreknowledge of God goes way beyond the fact that God knew beforehand who would be saved but includes the fact that in his sovereignty and he is God after all, right? He set his love on people not because of any merit on their part whatsoever, but totally because of his mercy and because of his grace. William Hendrickson refers to it as, and I love this, God's divine active delight. Divine active delight. The security for every believer in Christ is that we are cherished by God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. There's that word again. Same word. And they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. As true believers, we share a unique, intimate relationship with the father through the son. But as you know, that is not the case for everyone who names the name of Christ, is it? Unfortunately, Jesus warned in Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or in your name did we cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. There it is again. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We're cherished by God. That's number one. Number two in this verse, Romans 8, 29, we find that we are chosen by God. Look at the second part of that verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Predestined. Again, our eternal redemption, our salvation, began, according to Paul, with the foreknowledge, the intimacy of God's love upon us. What does that foreknowledge really mean? Does it mean, as many argue, that God looked down through history and saw who would accept His gift of grace and therefore elect them to salvation? Or is there foreordination involved in this? These are great questions, aren't they? In other words, did God choose beforehand all those who would be saved? Is salvation based on God's sovereign election? Or by our personal choice? Well, you're not going to like the answer. Somebody said it, I think. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. I told you you wouldn't like it. The Bible holds both of these truths in tension. Let me just show you a couple of verses where both of those things are held in tension. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 27. Matthew 11, 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for in this way... Was well, it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That's God's choice, right? Now go to verse 28. Here's Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's personal choice. In the very next next verse, John chapter 6, classic text on this, verse 37, the first part of it. John 6, verse 37, says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's God's choice, right? God's sovereignty. Well, look at the second half of the verse, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Seems like it's personal choice, doesn't it? How about john 6 same chapter verse 44 no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day that's god's sovereignty right well look at verse 47 truly truly i say to you he who believes has eternal life That sounds like you got a choice in the matter doesn't it Oh, we could go on and on and on with a lot of texts like this in the scripture and there's that tension. You're going to wrestle with it for the rest of your life. Ultimately, however, if we are pressed to fall on one side or the other, at least I would have to say that although we are involved in the response process, it wouldn't happen apart from God's sovereign intervention because we simply are spiritually dead in sin. Without the drawing and gracious hand of God operating upon our lives, no one would ever come to him on our own. There is none who seeks after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Why? Because we are blinded by Satan's lies in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Because our sinful nature puts us at odds with God in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, and Colossians 1:21. And because we don't naturally seek after God, and I just quoted to you Romans 3, 11. Even in our response of faith, it does not originate with us. It is the gift of God Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, right? For you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not as a result of works, lest any one of you should boast about it. Only those who God has sovereignly ordained actually respond in faith. Acts chapter 13, verse 48 says this. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believe. Here's the fact. If you take nothing else out of here, go home with this. God is the one who is in control. Yeah. He not only sees in advance, but ordains in advance. As one commentator put it, it is both unbiblical and illogical to argue from the truth that the Lord simply looked ahead to see who would believe and then chose particular individuals for salvation on that basis. If that were true, salvation not only would begin with man's faith, but would make God obligated to grant it. God's not obligated to grant anything to us, is he? (laughs) So, the question was once asked by Rainer Maria Rilke, who is this Christ who interferes with everything? (laughs) It's a good question. Basically, God's foreknowledge, his forelove, and his foreordination amounts to his sovereign interference. I love that term. Sovereign interference. Remember that term. Because every time you walk through life, every single moment of every single day of your life, you can notice God's sovereign interference. If you want to put it bluntly, God is in the business of interfering with people's lives, isn't he? Anybody got a testimony here? Really? You're all unsaved? (laughs) Raise your hand if you have a testimony. You're afraid I'm going to haul you up here, aren't you? If you have a testimony, you have experienced God's divine, sovereign interference in your life, haven't you? If you want to put it bluntly, God is in the business of doing that. And you know what? That's a good thing. It's a great thing. I'm glad he interfered with my life. He has interfered with every life that has ever come to faith in him. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, speaking of Abraham. For I have chosen, oh, literally the word known, by the way, him, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Here we go. God completely interfered with Abraham's life. He called him from the comfort of his home in Genesis 12. He changed his and his wife's names in Genesis 17. Started their family when he was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 in Genesis 18. Don't tell me he didn't interfere with his life. And then he asked them to sacrifice his only son. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 of Jeremiah. The scripture says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. There it is again. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah wasn't even out of the womb, and God was interfering in his life. Let me ask you a question. Is God interfering in your life? Would you recognize it? Because I hope he is. Maybe you're dealing with the same things Francis Thompson was dealing with when he wrote these sentiments in a piece called The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthian ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. To be called, wrote D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, means that you know God has been concerned about you, that he has done everything to you. He has interfered in your life, has erupted into your life and laid hold upon you. So God interferes with our life and then you find yourself convicted of sin. You do not desire this. It is entirely against the grain, right? You do not want to be disturbed. Your desire was to go on living in the same way. You enjoyed sin and found your happiness in the world. But you are disturbed. You feel condemned. You are convicted of the wrongfulness of it all. You're not doing this to yourself. It is the last thing that you would do to yourself, but it has been done to you. And in spite of the fact that you did everything you could to resist it and wish it were not happening to you, as John Bunyan describes it, a voice keeps on coming to you and you try to stop your ears and run away from it, right? This is what's happening in the world today. Only you know what the culture says? The culture says, it's okay, just do what you want. You don't need to live with that conviction, you don't need to live with that sovereign interference. We'll accept you. So churches put signs on the outside of their walls saying, we'll accept you no matter what you do. Come on in. The preaching's fine. <laughs> right? If that describes you, don't resist his interference. You know why? Because he loves you and he wants you for himself. You will have the security you long for in him, not out there. This is what Josh Harris, if he is a true child of God, is going to have to deal with as he runs away from his faith. God will pursue him. God will pursue him in love. God will hound him. God will interfere with him. And we need to pray that would happen. So Paul moves on in this this text and says that we are not only cherished by God, not only are we chosen by God, but thirdly, if we are truly known by him, we are being chiseled by God. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed. Conformed to what? To the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What is the purpose for all this sovereign interference? For all of this attention that God is giving us? Simply put, that we might be conformed to the image of his son. It's our destiny as Christians. If you are a believer in Christ, your destiny is to become like Jesus. If you're not living like Jesus and you're under conviction, God's going to not stop hounding you. You can't get away from it if you're his true child. You will never become God, but you will be as close to it as any human being can become because it is his predetermined plan to make you of the same mold as his son. That's what it says here in verse 29. That is what he predestines us to. It's a done deal. Okay? The question is always raised, well, if God predestines some to salvation, then logically it follows that he also predestines some to condemnation. What kind of God is that? Remember what I told you at the beginning of this message about not being able to fully comprehend the depths of God's truth? I wasn't kidding. Nor am I using that as an easy escape from a very difficult question. The fact is, however, that Scripture doesn't teach that God chooses unbelievers for condemnation. If a person goes to hell, it is because he or she has chosen to reject God's universal offer of salvation. John chapter 3, verse 18, John writes, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you remember anything, please remember this statement. God's sovereignty never dispels our responsibility. The Scriptures clearly teach that God predestines people to eternal life, but it doesn't teach the opposite. John MacArthur puts it precisely when he says, Unbelievers are condemned by their own unbelief, not by God's predestination. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for anyone to perish but for all to come to repentance. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. And what's it say in verse 4? Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. He's always reaching out to people. God is always trying to interfere with an unbeliever's life to get his attention and draw him to salvation. And then he's always interfering in a believer's life to try to to make sure that they're staying on track. The word conformed, in Romans 8, 29, indicates an outward expression of an inward essence or nature. So in other words, as Christians, we're transformed inside the heart to resemble Jesus, which results in an outward change that reflects his beauty, character, and holiness, his grace, and tenderness, his patience, his humility, etc., etc., all the fruit of the Spirit, Right? Paul wrote it, 2 Corinthians 3, because we all with unveiled face beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Notice that Paul doesn't say that God is making a better image of us. He's not saying that. This is the best Brian that I'm going to make. No, no. He's making Brian into the image of Jesus. He's making you into the image of Jesus, and hopefully me too. There's a big difference in those two perspectives, isn't there? He's chiseling us into the image of Christ. The Greek word for image here is interesting. It's the word from which we get our English word, icon, It refers to a derived likeness, not a likeness that is accidental. Okay, let me kind of unpack the difference there. It is a likeness that comes directly from the object that it resembles. For example, a penny contains the image of Lincoln, right? It is a derived likeness. It came directly from the original. The presidential heads on Mount Rushmore are derived likenesses of Washington, Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Lincoln. Sometimes people say that some of my sons, one of my sons in particular, is a spitting image of me as his father. You know why? It's a derived likeness. That's what Paul is talking about here. The image of Christ in a believer is not accidental. It is derived from the real thing. An adopted son may look like his parents. I knew some adopted kids that you would swear were biologically the parent's child. So much so that people think they're a true son, biologically, but you know what? That's totally by accident. It is not a derived likeness. It's purely by accident. But there are many people in the world that may resemble some of the characteristics of Christ, and yet have no relationship with him. That's accidental. It doesn't make them saved. But a true believer is destined to become chiseled into the very derived likeness of Christ. John wrote about it in 1 John 3. You know this verse, beloved, now we are children of God and it's not yet appeared as what we will be, but we know that when he appears we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There's that sovereignty responsibility again, right? God's doing it, but we have to respond in obedience. I think Eric Davis in a recent article on the tragedy of apostasy really states it succinctly. He says, by the grace of God alone, a sinner passes from condemnation to salvation through sanctification into glorification." And God has ordained that sanctification not happen by effortless drift. God's ordained means of persevering in the faith is fighting the fight of faith. Apostates apostatize because they are not Christians. That's what John, 1 John 2, verse 19 says. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. They are of the flesh and therefore spiritually dead, according to Romans 8, verses 6 and 7, if you back up in the chapter. Since they do not have the Holy Spirit, they cannot experience one of His most miraculous and powerful miracles. You know what that is? Sanctification. What does sanctification mean? It means the process of becoming like Christ, holy, set apart, being conformed to the image of His Son. God's chiseling, Next time somebody says, what's sanctification? You just answer them, God's chiseling. What does that mean? You know what it means. Though apostates associate visibly with the community of the spirit, they cannot do so spiritually by being conformed to the image of Christ because they don't have the spirit in them. It may appear that they, are externally, that they are externally, but they are not experiencing sanctification because they have never experienced salvation. You have to have that first. This means that those who are unregenerate will eventually be exposed in a local church which rightly emphasizes progressive maturation in Christ-likeness. If a church is growing in the image of Christ, those who are not Christ are going to stick out like a sore thumb. Friends, God is in the process of making us like Jesus in every way. We will be like him in glory. We will be like him bodily. We will be like him spiritually in humility and sufferings, practically in our character and our speech and actions. Let me ask you a question because this whole concept of being chiseled into Jesus' image begs this question. Is there anything in your life or mine or our character, or our speech, or our actions that would cause someone to see the image of Jesus in us? Are there things? Does anyone in this world think that Jesus might have looked anything like you? Or me? Or acted anything like you? Or me? Or sounded anything like you or me. Friends, if, if these words of Romans 8 here are true, and they are, if we are now being transformed into the image of the one who lives in us, that means we are a picture of Christ to the world. A derived likeness, not accidental. Is he visible in your life or mine? Have you grasped just an inkling of the truth of this passage yet? Because it's deep. You realize that you are cherished by God, that you're chosen by God, and that your whole person is being chiseled by God. That Jesus might be seen as the preeminent and the prominent one. The firstborn among many brethren according to this word, every single person who has been cherished, chosen, and chiseled has an eternal guarantee from God. A security that will never be breached. It will never be threatened. And Paul caps it off with a rock-solid hope in the last verse here, 30. We will be championed by God. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Scholars call this crescendo of hope the golden chain. You can write that right in your margins of your Bible. They call it the golden chain. And make no mistake about it, friends. God is the one who accomplishes every single bit of it. Every bit of it. Our efforts are not mentioned in this verse or even alluded to in this verse, is it? Are they? It says here that he predestined and he called and he called and he justified and he justified and he glorified. Here's the bottom line. You can take this home to the bank. Ponder it, chew on it. Disagree with it if you want to. Search the scriptures about it. All who begin will ultimately finish. God has a 100% success rate. There is no attrition. Okay? Why? Because it all depends on him every aspect of our salvation from the beginning of it to the end of it. He foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us and he will glorify us. The same number of people who were called by God will be glorified by God. Now remember what I said before that God's sovereignty doesn't dispel our responsibility because he wants us to obey. That's our fact. That's what we do. But he's going to make it so we do. No one is able to snatch us out of the Father's hand if we're true believers, John 10, 29. Not one will be lost, Jesus said, because it's the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day, John says in 6, verse 39, chapter 6, verse 39. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who truly comes to Christ will be preserved. It is the will of God. That's what the scripture says. Scholars call that doctrine the final perseverance of the saints. Whatever else may be said about this passage, Kent Hughes said that one thing is clear, the entire initiative of our salvation lay with God. Prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 46 verse 4, And in verses 8 through 10, even to your old age, I will be the same. I am he. And even to your graying years, and I'm glad about that. They're getting gray. (laughs) I will bear you. I have done it. I have made you, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. He's He's talking about Israel there, his chosen people. But aren't we... Spiritually applied, his chosen people. Remember this and be assured, Isaiah says, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, here it is, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God has no process without His purpose being fulfilled. That ultimate destiny, destiny, our glorification, is so secure, so established that Paul refers to it in the past tense. Look at it right here in verse 30. "Those whom he justified he also what? He glorified as if it were already accomplished. James Denny, one-time principal of Free Church College in Edinburgh, called this statement the most daring anticipation of faith that the New Testament contains. I love that. To God who sees the end from the beginning, it is a done deal. You're a done deal if you're a true believer. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14 says, it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that day, think about that day. In that day, Romans 3.23 will be a verse of antiquity. For no believer will ever fall short of the glory of God again in that day. My friend, you may have had a hideous past. To some extent, we all have, on one level or another. But if you are in Christ, you have got a glorious future. Guaranteed. Our security could not have been more clearly defined than in these two verses. All who are genuinely saved are eternally saved. Actress Lauren Bacall may have articulated our assurance better than any theologian around when she asserted this. And this is what I'll end with. I'm not a has been. I'm a will be. Father, thank you so much for these promises because they are so, so secure. And help us to walk in them and live in them. And I know sometimes we forget. But I pray, Father, this week that whenever we get a little bit messed up and off the track, that you would bring this to mind, that you will glorify us and we will be together with you. So let us persevere, Lord God by the power of your Holy Spirit, and keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.